On a dark desert night. A small voice calls. Sister, will you tell us a tale? Jinn, Magians, Sultans, Buried Treasure. We're going to explore what they say about their cultures then and why they captivate us now. Light your lamp and pour some tea while we retell you a thing. Welcome back to the Fairy Tellers Podcast. Great to have you here with us today. As always, I'm excited to be here. Are you excited, Katrina? I think I'm always excited. <laughs> I think if we start an episode where we don't say that we're excited for the episode, then like we just stop recording and go home because oh, man. it's not an episode of our podcast. Katrina, in preparation for this episode, I went to see if we had any new reviews that we could read at this beginning portion of our episode. And I found that we did not have any new reviews. We'd read them all. And I was like, man, that makes me kind of sad because I was really looking forward to reading some of these <laughs> reviews. Which it may just be because I only know how to find the iTunes reviews. Apparently like Stitcher or Spotify also has written reviews, but I have, I don't know how to find them. So two favors. One, if you can teach me how to find reviews on any of these other platforms, that would be great. Or two, if you could go onto iTunes or whatever platform you listen to us on and leave us a review because we love to hear it and it really does help the podcast. It helps other people find it, works on the crazy like whatever algorithm is going on that suggests things to people and gets it into their ears, which is what we love, being in people's ears. So with that, Katrina, what are we going to put into people's ears today? Gross. <laughs> <laughs> the nastiest segue. <laughs> So today is going to be a really fun and light conversation about religion. Aren't they all? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> kind of. Uh, so it is going to be a fun and light conversation about the difference between so religious mythologies and folk belief. We're going to be talking about this through the topic of dreams that are inside of uh, both of these categories, like religious mythology stories and folk belief. So the intersection of religion and folk belief is a topic that I find really interesting. Uh, it's basically like how people take religion and theology and then fit it into their lives in ways that aren't necessarily specifically described in religious mythology stories. Right. So I grew up in a religious community and it was fascinating for me to see the differences that existed in the beliefs of the people themselves. Even the differences like inside of one community of people who have like a shared religion. Yeah. But before we start talking about that, I just wanted to remind everyone that was listening, because we've talked about this in the past, but I just wanted to like reiterate it, that one thing about folklore studies is that folklore studies is not interested in validating or invalidating truth claims. So when we talk about Christian mythology, we're not saying that Christian religious beliefs are true with a capital T or untrue. And when we label something as like mythology, what we're saying is that it was part of a religious community's holy and sacred beliefs. Which is confusing because like it is a very specific use of the word myth and mythology yeah. that 
is especially these days kind of different from what people think of with myth. Like saying like, oh, that's just a myth is a thing to say. Like that is an untrue story that people tell. Yeah, like that's... Or myth busters, you know, it's like, oh no, like it's not true that this thing can happen. Yeah, like the the common meaning and the common usage of the word myth is different than how it is used when it is being described inside of like an academic when you're describing it, using it as an academic word. Right. So in Folklore 101, an accessible introduction to folklore studies, Dr. Jenna Jorgensen says, quote, folklore has a neutral orientation towards truth value. Calling something folklore in the slang sense of the word might mean you're saying, oh, that's just folklore, or oh, that's just a myth, or oh, that's just a fairy tale, or oh, that's just an urban legend all of which are used to mean, oh, that's fake. Mm -hmm. We don't use any of those terms in folklore studies to mean fake, end quote. So when I say like Christian mythology or Jewish mythology, I'm not saying that it's lies and made up pretend stories. The term mythology in the context that we're using it truly means that we're saying this is a story or a group of stories that was or is used by a religious community and are considered sacred. So there are stories that are by definition mythologies that within their religious communities are considered true. Right. And there are also stories that are defined as mythologies within religious communities that the religious community themselves considers metaphorical. Mm -hmm. And that's completely up to the religious community to decide within their group. A folklorist isn't going to come in and tell a religious community that like the story of Adam and Eve is real or metaphorical. What a folklorist wants to know is if the religious community believes that the story is real or metaphorical. Right. And there are different groups of, like, Christianity is a really broad term. So there are groups of Christianity that believe that the story of Adam and Eve is purely metaphorical. Uh And then there are Christian groups that believe very strongly that the story is real and historical. And again, folklorists aren't trying to prove whether these stories are true or not true. They just love that the story is being taught and told, and they want to know why. Yeah, what it says about the culture of those people and what they believe or don't believe, and why. Exactly. Which is what we do here on the Fairy Tellers podcast. Yeah. So I know we've talked about it in the past, but I wanted to make sure that we're all on the same page before we start talking because obviously, like, religion is a super sensitive topic. Because it hits on some very important topics about, like, how people live their lives, how they, you know, make choices for themselves and their communities, and um, just, you know, what they consider sacred. So religious stories are sacred, and we're not out here wanting to make anyone feel like we're mocking or belittling their beliefs by labeling them as mythology. Yeah. Thank you for that disclaimer, especially on an episode where I ask people to leave us reviews because people might be like, oh, yeah, I'll leave you a review, all right? One star. (laughs) They called my story a mythology, and it's like, yes, we did. We're sorry. We're not sorry. 
So now that we've got that working definition, like with mythology, I do want to say folklorists and comparative mythologists, they have definitions for mythology that vary, but our definition is going to be one that's like a broader one, which is just a story that is used uh, by a religious community and Period. is considered like <laughs> sacred. Yeah. Um, so there, there are some definitions that are like, oh, mythology is like a creation story mm. or like, so like there are some definitions that are very like small, narrow, like tight. And then there are other much broader ones. So now defining folk belief. So folk belief is where the people who are part of that faith really start to experiment with the practicality of that religious theology. And this is where some interesting variation can come in. For instance, I was born into a faith that believes that all of our spirits existed in a place similar to heaven before we were born. So the idea of the spirits existing is part of the theology of that religion. And the mythology around that is laid out in the Holy Scriptures for that group. So that teaching isn't up for debate inside of that religion. It's sacred. but. Here's where some folk belief comes in, because people have wondered if our souls existed before they existed on Earth, did we all know each other? Did we pick out our spouses before we even left that place? Do we have soulmates? Did we pick out our families? When we had children, did our children choose us? So these questions, they're not answered by the mythologies. They're not in the sacred writings. They're not part of like the set theology. So people within that group have very strong beliefs either way, even though it's not set down in writing. So mm -hmm. I knew people who believed that they had a soulmate, that they knew each other before like their souls knew each other before, you know, they were born into bodies on earth. I know people who believe that their children specifically chose to be born into the family that they were in. So those are examples of folk beliefs. They're not part of the theology, but they're kind of backed up by some of the mythologies. Mm in that religion. Yeah. You picked out an example that was like really deep and meaningful. And when you were explaining it to me, the first thing that came to my mind was the fact that like when my grandma would spill salt on the table, she would like sweep it into her hand and throw it over her left shoulder to like throw it into the eyes of Satan or like ward off evil spirits or something like that. And I was yes. like, <laughs> I was like, you know, like Satan, demons, evil spirits, whatever. It's like, that's part of the mythology of religions. But the like throwing salt in their eyes thing is like, seems to me like a folk belief. Like, I don't know anywhere in scripture of that religion that it says that that's a thing. So, yeah, it's like these these are like answers to questions that aren't like backed up by the sacred writings, by the sacred stories, the mythologies, by like, you know, religious theology. But the people that are within that group have really strong beliefs either way. Because yeah, if you said to your grandma, like, grandma, that's stupid. <laughs> like, she would probably, you know, <laughs> not appreciate you saying that mostly because it's disrespectful, Jeff. The other thing too is I don't know where she got that, like whether it's like her Jewish side, whether it's like 
whatever, like growing up like in Egypt, you know what I mean? Like there's so many. Well, yeah, because I'm like, that's a common one that I've heard. Not Yeah, it's, it's not like yeah, a str- yeah. I've heard it being a thing too, besides yeah. my grandma. But. Or even like, oh, throw it over your shoulder to like, yeah, even if they're not demons, it's usually like, you know, whatever other local creature it's supposed to be that's bringing about bad luck. Uh-huh. Whether it's demons, general evil spirits or whatever. It's like, oh, if you throw like salt, like over your shoulder. And like, I know people who believe that they found their soulmates. And like, even though they're not backed up by their theology, like they believe them strongly, like in their heart. Mm. And it's important to them, like it's sacred for them. But they're examples of folk belief because they're not backed up by the theology interesting can i read you a thing that i just found on morton salt's website so you know it must be true (laughs) the widespread superstition that spilling salt brings bad luck is believed to originated with the overturned salt cellar in front of judas iscariot at the last supper an incident immortalized in leonardo da vinci's famous painting that makes sense so it turns out it was in the scriptures no but that's like one of the things that's so interesting about that is that it's it was it was a, a detail like in the scripture but it wasn't it wasn't necessarily supposed to it wasn't mean, tied in yeah it wasn't tied yeah. into the fact that it's like that's an evil thing it's just like oh like this person who happened to betray Christ spilled salt like maybe that was a bad sign yeah but it it, it never says like oh and the way to counteract that is that you if grab only he had thrown it over, it his, over shoulder. his shoulder yeah the second half of that book would have been so much different. But it's interesting because like people will fill in those like gaps. Like that's where folk belief comes in is like to come in and like fill in those like gaps Yeah. where people are like, oh, but how do I defeat right? like evil spirits that are around me or like counteract the bad luck of like spilling this or this yeah. like bad omen and like I- integrating it into their lives in ways that aren't explicitly stated sometimes. So in the time that the stories of the Thousand One Nights were being written, you obviously have some of the religious traditions and stories that we're familiar with today. So in our very first episode this year about the frame story of the Thousand and One Nights, there was references to stories that were found in the Bible and the Quran. And we kind of um, mentioned some of those in that episode while we were talking. Specifically, what we talked about was the woman who came out of the jinn's like treasure chest mm. who had sex with the king and his brother she said and i will quote her poem what the jinn did not know was that when a woman wants something nothing can get the better of her as a poet has said do not put your trust in women or believe their covenants their satisfaction and their anger both depend on their private parts <laughs> They make a false display of love, but their clothes are stuffed with treachery. (laughs) Take a lesson from the tale of Joseph, and you will find some of their tricks. Do you not see that your father Adam was driven out from Eden thanks to them? So in that poem, there is a reference to Joseph in Egypt Mm. and his issues with the wife of the guy who he was ultimately sold to. Yeah, Potiphar. And there's a reference to Adam and his wife Eve getting them kicked out of the Garden of Eden. So these are references to stories within a religious text. So 
mythologies. These are throwbacks to, you know, these like mythological stories. So we know that these stories were being referenced and alluded to and used in the Thousand and One Nights. And we've, you know, talked about that before. So in today's episode, I wanted to look closer at the story of Joseph of Egypt very briefly for our purposes. And then we're going to talk about stories in the Thousand One Nights with dreams that tell us more about like the folk beliefs of the people and how, how they felt about dreams and what what you can learn from your dreams. So in the Bible, Joseph of Egypt, he was born into a really big family with lots of brothers by lots of different mothers. He was the 11th son born by no, he was the 11th he was the 11th son born and the firstborn son of his father's favorite wife, Rachel. So even though he wasn't the oldest son, he still had this kind of favored position because he was his father's favorite wife. Father's favorite wife. So complicated. Son. Firstborn son. Son, yes. His firstborn son from the favorite wife. So complicated family dynamic, right? So Joseph and his brothers have a very complicated relationship with each other because of Joseph's kind of favored status. He very famously receives a coat of many colors <laughs> from his father. Anyway, there was this story that I always thought was really funny anytime I would hear it just because I was like, <laughs> wow, he was this guy, like he was this like brother. But if you're like more in a religious mindset, then you're not like, oh, this guy. But anyway, so Joseph, when he was 17 years old, he had two dreams that he told his brothers about. So in the first one, it was he and his brothers were gathering up like bundles of grain and the grain that his brothers gathered up in his dream, like, bowed down to his grain that he had gathered. So, and then in the second dream that he had, it was the sun, who is his father, the moon, his mother, and then 11 stars, who represented his brothers, bowed down to Joseph. And these dreams like implied that he would grow up and be like of a mm -hmm. higher status than them, his older brothers. And it made his brothers really <laughs> mad when he told him this You're dream, like, which, yeah, I kind of am <laughs> like, as a human being, I'm like, I get it. I yeah, get it. <laughs> I get it. But at the same time, you know, like in this story, it is like, you know, he was telling them, this dream knowledge that he was getting and what it symbolized. And they actively were like, no, we hate your dream knowledge. And so they plotted against him. They ended up selling him into slavery and he got taken with this caravan to Egypt where he was sold to another guy named Potiphar, who we just like alluded to earlier. And because of, Potiphar's wife's false accusations against Joseph, he ended up getting thrown into prison. So while he's in prison, the Pharaoh's chief cup bearer got thrown into prison and the chief baker also got thrown into prison. So while they were in prison, both of those men, the cup bearer and the chief baker, 
they ended up having dreams and they told those dreams to Joseph. So the cupbearer's dream was that there was a vine that had three branches that were budding. And as it was budding, they bloomed and blossomed and then, you know, developed grapes on them. And the cupbearer in the dream took the grapes and squeezed them into the Pharaoh's cup and gave the cup to Pharaoh. And Joseph interpreted that dream for the cupbearer that he was going to be released from prison and he was going to get his job back as like the Pharaoh's cupbearer within three days. And the baker's dream was that he had three baskets that were full of bread that he was going to give to the Pharaoh, but then birds flew down and ate all of the bread out of the basket. And Joseph ended up interpreting that dream and telling them that like, you are going to get hung in the next three days and you're going to have your flesh pecked by like the birds, like in the dream. And both of those things ended up happening exactly as Joseph interpreted from the dreams. And so Joseph then was in prison for like two more years. And then the Pharaoh ended up having a dream that nobody else could interpret. And he was talking about them, I guess, in front of the cupbearer. And the cupbearer remembered that his dream had been accurately interpreted uh -huh. by Joseph of Egypt. And so he told the Pharaoh, hey, by the way, none of the other people who are around you have been able to interpret your dream. You should tell your dream to Joseph in Egypt. He, he didn't call him Joseph of Egypt. He's he, just Joseph Everybody the guy named in Joseph prison. around his name. <laughs> yeah, it was Joseph of Egypt. But yeah, so he was like, oh, I know a guy. He's I in know prison. a guy in cell block D. Go tell him your dream. Yeah, go tell him your dream. And so the Pharaoh's dream, I think it was, he had two dreams. One was that there were seven like skinny cows that went and ate seven fat cows. And then there's also seven like withered up ears of, I can't remember if it was like corn or wheat or something, but it was like withered up ears of like some type of grain. And they went and they devoured the seven like fat ears of grain. Mm -hmm. So Joseph interpreted that dream to mean that they were going to have like seven years of abundance followed by seven years of famine. And what they needed to do was start storing up food and especially grain now because they soon would be like those thin cows and need to devour the plenty that was stored up in like the seven years, like the, the fat cows. Anyway, so he ended up interpreting that and the Pharaoh did start like creating the surplus. So then when a famine came, Joseph, who had since then been like freed and had become like a vizier, his family came to during the famine to get some of that like grain. And there was this kind of like reconciling the brothers with their brother Joseph and the story like continues on, but for our purposes, those are like kind of like the main dreams right? in the stories that I want to talk about. So, so in those stories, we can see that like 
the stories that were inside of the Bible showed that dreams came from God and that accurate interpretation of dreams was also like a gift that was divinely given by God. And so you could trust like religious leaders to interpret their dreams as coming from God and act upon that. And then also possibly like interpret other people's dreams coming from God. So there was this kind of, so it kind of sets this kind of like religious precedent that like dreams can come from God. Right. Yeah. So what's really interesting to us now turning back to like the thousand and one nights is that we can look at the thousand and one nights to give us clues as to what the folk beliefs around dreams were. Like what did people at the time think about dreams, not on a religious level, but on like a more local level. So the thousand one nights, Obviously super saturated with like religion and like the religious stories that were like around at the time. And we've basically seen all year long how many characters rely on God to save them. And they're often, you know, repeating out like scriptures and praises to God to help them and save them from like gin or like cursed old buildings that were calling down for them to like kill themselves (laughs) (laughs) and dreams have come up they come up a lot in the thousand one nights but almost as like little asides that you barely even remember i had almost forgotten about this one so last year we told the story of hassan of basra yeah and there was a moment in hassan of basra that it really is like it's so fast that like it's super easy to like forget about it. But right after Hassan Abbasra had been married to the like jinn daughter that he had captured, he was living in the palace of all of these like other jinn. Mm-hmm. And then he has a dream that gives him information about his mother back in Baghdad, who is suffering because she thought that Hassan was like obviously dead and never coming back ever because he had been like taken by this, like I'm going to put this in air quotes, evil Zoroastrian Persian. (laughs) And so she assumed that he was dead. And so in the story, he has this dream that his mother is like crying and suffering and in torment And this little element in the story is what then moves the characters out of that like hidden away palace of the Jinn daughters to Baghdad, where his wife is then able to turn back into a bird and fly away. And it carries us into like the next half of that like epic story. Yeah. Which is so good. Like I'm still waiting for like the Netflix miniseries of that to be made because it's. It's so good. Awesome. (laughs) Great cast of characters. So anyway, what's also interesting about that element being inside of that story is that like Hassan is constantly being helped by calling on God to like help him in his journey. And it's constantly like juxtaposed with this Zoroastrian who were at the time in that area kind of considered to be like evil. Mm-hmm. and bad there was a lot of very 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 bad negative stereotypes like about them a lot of you know hate animosity like between like the groups 
And so inside of that story, at the beginning, the mother is worried that her son is going to be taught alchemy, which is considered witchcraft and considered like evil. And so she's worried about her son getting mixed up with all this witchcraft. And so it's interesting because you can see that it's like, okay, evil witchcraft, alchemy, but dreams and interpretation of dreams are good. Right. And something that like a a good and righteous and religious person would listen to and like believe in. And so like within that story, you can see like the folk belief is that like dreams are good and they can help you. Alchemy, (laughs) bad, (laughs) like evil witchcraft. Because it can only give you money. Yeah. And so, and also, like, within the story itself, it's a, it's a way for our protagonist to discover information about his mother hundreds of miles away through a dream that's considered safe and not a cult. Yeah. To kind of, you know, pull the action of that story itself. And so, including this, like, divination from, like, dreams is an element that they could put in the story and it could still have kind of like a religious base to it. Oniromancy or divination through dreams was one of those types of divination that was seen as proper and with a religiously acceptable background because there were mythological stories of like prophets who had dreams that would help them or if they were interpreted by a priest would help them Um, even King David famously had like a dream that when he told it to like his prophet was like a scolding to him from God. So like, there's Mm -hmm. this like long line of, you know, religiously acceptable backgrounds for Oniromancy. So I have a quote from Marina Warner. Yes. As we always should. (laughs) I I have a quote from Marina Warner in Stranger Magic. It's, Dreams can come true for anyone, for the knowledge they contain belongs in a supernatural realm of prophecy and God-ordained destiny, and so they can reveal what is decreed. If dream divination is the gift of prophets who have been admitted to share God's knowledge, then dream understanding is the wisdom of fairy tale, a gift given to its heroes and heroines. So basically... You know, she's saying that knowledge that is God-ordained, like, given from God, you know, has this, like, religious background. And then this dream understanding is inside of, like, stories. It is something that it's like, oh, yeah, of course. This totally makes sense that heroes and heroines would have this, like, dream understanding or wisdom found in fairy tales. And we still find that in storytelling today. Yeah. I literally last night just saw the movie Dune. And a big part of that is like Paul Atreides, the main character, is having these dreams that are visions of the future. And it's like he makes decisions about what he does based on these dreams because he's like, I know that these things are, you know, it's like they're like guiding him. It's like, which I mean, that's not a new story. It's like. I mean, it's like 30, 40 something years old, which is not that old. When when was the book Dune written? What's really interesting, yeah, find out when it was written because what's really interesting that So I just looked it up and the and the 
original book, the novel Dune, was written in 1965. So yeah, I mean, more than 40. Like, 60. As like an aside, super fascinating. Uh, in this chapter of Stranger Magic by Marina Warner, she talks about how there was like a surge of Western acceptance of dreams as being able to like prophesy something or dreams having like meaning, whether it was to uh, to delve deeper into our subconscious or they actually told us stuff that was going to happen, but you can only access it like in your, through your subconscious. Mm -hmm. And so like, there's this like kind of like surge of that, um, that belief like happening to the point where like now inside of movies or books, when a character like has a dream, even if me, even if like I as like an audience member don't believe that dreams really can prophesy anything because it is such an ingrained part of storytelling now, like an element, we all know that the dreams mean something. Mm -hmm. If a character has a dream inside of a movie or inside of a book, yeah. we all automatically know that it's going to mean something later yeah. and that we need to like hold on to that information. Even if we as an audience don't believe that ourselves. Right. Like we don't believe it within real life, but within storytelling, it's such a thing. Yeah. That we like, we will automatically we'll be like, Oh, it's like a acceptable. trope. Uh huh. That like, and like, so Marina Warner talked about that, like inside of that chapter, which I thought was like really like interesting because I, it was something that once it was said, I realized like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Like we, we do, we, we do just automatically accept dream information as important information when we are yeah. like reading a book, watching a movie, like whatever it is, we're like, oh, this is going to be important for later. I mean, part of it is probably because we're like, oh, they wouldn't tell me th this if it had nothing to do with anything. Yeah, exactly. Within like, the movies, context movies of like don't a often, movie. Yeah. <laughs> they often include information that's like not absolutely going to be necessary to the story. It's not going to be like, and the main character dreamed about a golden banana falling from the sky, but it was just a really weird dream. And like, it doesn't have anything to do with anything. Yeah. But it's like, oddly, we will just automatically uh, be like, oh, okay, this is important for later. Even if we in our, in our daily lives don't believe that our dream knowledge is important for later. So Jeff is going to tell us a tale from the Thousand and One Nights. The tale of Almut Awakil and Mabuba. So this dude, Almut Awakil, was the caliph. And to start with, in this story, he had 400 concubines. And then some other dude gave him another 400 concubines. And among this additional 400 concubines was a woman named Mabuba, who was, because she's the main female character of this story, a woman of radiant beauty and grace, is a direct quote from the text. But also she was like blessed with wit and coquetry, which I had never heard that word before to my knowledge. And I looked it up and it means like a flirtatious nature. And as if that wasn't enough, she could play the lute. She was an excellent singer. She could write poetry. She had beautiful calligraphy, calligraphic handwriting. 
And of course, you know, like, look, I know that when I get on Tinder, those are the qualities that I'm looking for. Almut Awakil was so infatuated with her that he like could not bear to part with her. And by part with her, like he wanted to be around her all the time, 24 hours a day. And when she saw how fond of her this like caliph, this most powerful person in the kingdom was of her, she obviously was like feeling pretty good about herself. And she got a little too prideful. She was ungrateful of the things that he started like giving her, the favors that he granted her. And he did not appreciate that because again, he was the most powerful person in the land. So he like threw her out of his sight in a fit of anger and gave orders that no one in the entire palace was to even speak to her. And this went on for some time. Our, our boy needed to cool down a bit. And as he was cooling down, he realized like, Man, I was really mad, but like I still have the hots for Mabuba. And so he told his companions about this dream that he had had the night before. And in that dream, he kind of like reconciled with Mabuba and she came back to him and everything was fine. And so his friends were like, okay, hey, we hope that God grants this thing like while you're awake, dude, not while you're dreaming. And so while they were saying this to him, this servant girl comes in and she whispers something. And this caused Al-Mutawakil to get up and run to the harem. And what the girl had told him was that there was this sound of someone singing and playing the lute coming from Mabuba's room, but nobody knew why. And so when Al-Mutawakil got there, he heard her singing this song, which I will quote to you now. I will not sing it but I will read it. I wander through the palace, but see no one. I complain, but no one speaks to me. It is as though I'm guilty of a sin and no repentance now can rescue me. Will no one intercede for me with a king who visited me in a dream and made his peace with me? But then when dawn had broken, he left me once again and broke our ties. And Al-Mutawakil was like blown away to hear her singing this song talking about how the night before she also had had a dream that he came to her and reconciled. And he was like, this is no coincidence. And so he gets into the room. She sees him and like jumps to her feet, runs over to him and starts kissing him and tells him about the dream. And that's why she composed the lines. And he's like, what? You had that dream. I had the same dream. And they were like super happy. They embraced, they made up. And he stayed with her for seven days and nights. At some point during that time, Mabuba had used musk to write Almut Awakil's name on her cheek, and his name was Jafar. When he saw this, he recited a little poetry of his own. She wrote Jafar and musk upon her cheek. My life would ransom one who wrote this word. Her fingers traced a single line on her cheek, but many are the lines they have left in my heart. Among mankind, Jafar possesses you. May God use the wine of your kisses to help a stream flow. Which is a super sweet poem. And when Amut Awakil died, he was forgotten by all of his concubines, except for Mabuba. So 799, forgot about him. But Mabuba continued to mourn him until her own death when she was buried by his side. And the story ends, may God have mercy on them. The end. So before we go back to kind of the point of this, which is the dreams uh, aspect, mm -hmm. 
that I'm sure we're going to get into. I thought like with the last little poem thing was really interesting. Katrina left, you left me a note saying like in that last line, may God use the wine of your kisses to help a stream flow. That that was a pun because Jafar, the name Jafar is like Arabic for stream, which was like, oh, that's really sweet. But also I thought it was really interesting that like he talked about her fingers wrote a line on her cheek. It's like a single line to write the name, but many lines are on my heart. And it's kind of like, oh yeah, like when you look at Arabic script, it's like, you know, like I can't read it, but it's like, oh, you do like a single line, like curse, like we would in English yeah. or whatever, like do something in cursive. It's like, oh, that's really interesting. There's like a single line. Anyway, I, I thought that was interesting, but also going back, like they both had the same dream and that was meaningful. Yeah. In the story, it's like they both, they both were given like the same dream. And I mean, I love how she talks about like how, like in the song that she's singing about how like in her dream, their quarrel had ended and then how sad she was to like wake up and realize like it was just a dream because like I've had that happen to me so often where like I see someone that I love that I haven't seen in a long time in a dream or you know, just like something wonderful that's happening in a dream. And I wake up and I find out that it wasn't real. And yeah. there's like a little like heartbreak there. And so it was like that part of the poem. I was like, oh, that's like really relatable. <laughs> yeah. But then for like our purposes also, there's that idea of like they were both sent a dream that helped them to like reconcile with each yeah. other. And it was interesting too, because the way that things play out, like the story is constructed very specifically to show that neither of them would have known about the other one's dream by being told about it. Yeah. Because it talks about how like he had just barely told these people about the dream. A girl comes in, a servant girl comes in and tells him and she's like, we don't know what what she's singing or why she's singing it. We just hear this lute playing coming from her room this morning. And we thought yeah. that that was meaningful. So we're going to tell you about it. Which, you know, by like dreams are things that are very, very private. Like nobody would know what you were dreaming unless you told them. Yeah. Which is why it would be super meaningful to have dreamt the same thing as somebody else. It would be hard to be like, well, it has to come from somewhere else if we're both having this exact same dream. It would be really easy to put a lot of stock into that. But also it would have to be very specific. Like it couldn't be, I tell you, hey, Katrina, this is the dream that I had. And you're like, oh my gosh, I had that same dream. Like I, it could be, but at the same time, yeah, there's like the, the doubt of like, oh yeah, she could just be making that up. Yeah. But if it's like, oh, like I wrote in my dream journal, this thing. And then you're like, and, oh my gosh. And I wrote and down in my up. dream yeah. journal at a separate occasion. And then it turns out that we both, yeah. Because he's hearing her from another room, like singing this song of like lament is how he finds out. And so, yeah, it's like he knew that she couldn't be you know, pretending that she had also had this dream or whatever. Cause she wasn't even thinking anyone was hearing it too. She was just kind of like singing it to herself. It's like, why would she be like lying about this to herself? Yeah. Yeah. So I picked this story for us to tell, not just because it's a story in the thousand and one nights that includes a dream in it, but because this is a historical story with historical figures in it say what say what so (laughs) this caliph 
is actually related to Harun al-Rashid. Harun al-Rashid was the the fifth caliph in the Abbasid dynasty. And this caliph is the 10th caliph in the Abbasid dynasty, which I'm trying to remember. I think he might, even though he's like the 10th caliph, he might be the grandson of Harun (laughs) al-Rashid. They went through him quick from five to 10. Yeah, because six and seven and eight were well, I I heard that seven eight nine oh my and gosh. then that's how <laughs> <laughs> and that's how we got the tenth one <laughs> the sixth seventh and eighth uh, caliphs were all Harun al Rashid's sons uh-huh. and then the ninth and the tenth were both the sons of the eighth one so this this guy even though he's the 10th caliph he's the just the grandson of harun al-rashid right and mabuba whose name means beloved oh yeah she is a historical figure a person who like really existed so fascinatingly before the sacking of Baghdad, when the House of Wisdom was destroyed, there was an author and a librarian who compiled a lot of different writings. And this was in like the 13th century. He compiled a lot of different writings. His name was Ibn al-Sa'i. And he compiled a lot of different records. So he wasn't a um, necessarily like a story writer, but he was like a comp- just a compiler of records and a person who would um, just kind of put like information with like information. And he created a book called Consorts of the Caliphs, Women and the Court of Baghdad. And it has short entries on a number of different women who were inside of the court of Baghdad during the Abbasid dynasty. He was what was called like a Abbasid loyalist where Mm -hmm. he, he very much like loved and believed in like the caliphate. And so a lot of the records that he compiled were, specifically about them and so mabuba has an entry inside of this book that again was compiled like in like the 13th century yeah and there are stories that he wrote down that he was told from other people and so it's interesting because it kind of reads as a like so and so who told so and so who told so and so who told so and so said that and then it gives like this story but what's really fascinating is inside of this collection of records that he compiled that from the way that he wrote it down sounds like it was word of mouth that he was hearing these stories like through other people who knew people inside of the court mm-hmm. he wrote down Almost exactly the same story that's found in the Thousand and One Nights. Both the the writing the musk on the face and the story of the dream. And so when we're talking about like 
oh, the Thousand One Nights can tell us, you know, the folk beliefs of the people. And it's like, well, like, is it really the folk beliefs of the people or is it more of these like wild, exaggerated epics? And some of the stories in the Thousand One Nights, 100% are exaggerated epics or like stories that are 100%, you know, falsified, you know, like Hassan and Basra. Yeah. You know, that I don't think anybody is claiming is a story that like really happened. Mm-hmm. But this is a story that actually is written down in historical records, whether again, whether it is a truth claim or not, like we're right. not here to prove if it is true or not. What I'm saying is it was written down as if it was true. Yeah. Which goes back to what we talked about in the very beginning, where it's like, it doesn't matter whether it's true or not, but it does tell us something interesting that the people that wrote it down believed that it was true. Yes. And that they thought, oh, this story is important. That, you know, when there was this falling out between a caliph and his favored concubine, they were able to, like, reconcile with each other because of this, like, dream. Mm -hmm. And, like, following, like, the wisdom inside of the dream, which was, like, go go to each other and like be with each other and they followed that and they were able to like reconcile with each other and the reason why it's important i think that we know whether the people that wrote it down thought it was true or not is for another point that you brought up at the beginning of the podcast where today regardless of what we think about dreams like in real life If it were in a story, we would go along with it. Like if it were in a movie, we'd go along with it. But if I were writing something down in historical record and I didn't believe that dreams worked that way, like I would not write that down in the historical record, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does. Yeah. Like, so there's a big, there is a big difference between us. Like the fact that it was written down as if it were true does say something about the fact that there were people probably including the one who wrote it down that thought that way and believed that way, which proves the point that we're trying to prove that it is a folk belief that was common among at least some people, enough people that that would be acceptable to write it down in the history books. Yeah. So now I'm going to tell a story that is a little bit more fun and not as like, Oh, this is historical, but like one that's just like more of a, a fun folk belief folk tale. Nice. Um, Like, yes, it shows like, you know, the folk belief around like dreams and like divination, like in dreams or whatever. But also the story is just fun and I like it. And it is called The Man Who Regained His Fortune Through a Dream. So there is a man who was very rich and wealthy because his father had left him all of his money when he died. And he lived in this pretty, like, a a nice size, not opulently, like, huge, but just, like, a nice, decent-sized house that Mm. did include a courtyard area with a beautiful fountain and lovely gardens. So, as this man was going through his life, he was just, like, spending and spending and spending like he didn't have a care in the world until he ran out of all of his money. And all he had left was this house that he was living in and he could barely afford food. He was like destitute and didn't know what he was going to do. 
So one night, feeling sorry for himself and sad and desperately hungry, he went to sleep. And in his dream, he heard a voice say, What God has provided for you is in Cairo. Follow and go to it. And so he immediately set off for Cairo. He listened to that dream voice, set off for Cairo. But when he finally did arrive there, he arrived really late at night. He didn't have, you know, any money. And also everyone was asleep. So he couldn't ask to stay anywhere for the night. And so he saw a local mosque and he went into their courtyard and he laid down and he went to sleep. But unbeknownst to him, there were some robbers who broke into a house next to the mosque and they broke into this house, woke up this family who was inside while they were ransacking the place. And they, you know, started screaming, oh, follow those men. So the robbers, they ran out of the house. They went into the courtyard of the mosque to run through it. And the people coming through chasing after these robbers then ran through and they found this man who had been sleeping on the floor and they grabbed him and immediately threw him in jail. They were like, oh, this is one of the robbers. They threw him in jail. Got him. So he was in jail for like three days before he was brought before the Quadi, the judge. And the judge was like, well, what do you have to say for yourself? And he's like, I am innocent. I was like, I am a poor, destitute person. I was just sleeping on the ground of the mosque. I I never like broke into their house. The men like ran past me. I'm not even from here. I'm from Baghdad. Like I didn't come all the way to Cairo to like steal. Like I didn't come all the way from Baghdad to Cairo to like steal from these people. Uh-huh. And the judge was like, okay, well, what was a man from Baghdad doing in Cairo? And the man answered, well, I lost all my money and I was destitute, but I heard in a dream that God would provide for me riches if I went to Cairo. And the Quadi started like laughing hysterically because he was like, oh my gosh, this old fool, this absolute like fool. And he was like, that is the most foolish thing I have ever heard in my life. I have three times had a dream that if I went to Baghdad to this little house that had a courtyard with a fountain in it, and I dug under the fountain, I would find mountains of gold. But I would never actually go to Baghdad <laughs> to look for that fountain. And the man, you know, just is like, okay, bro. <laughs> Thinking to himself, like, yeah. oh my gosh. And the judge says, Foolish man, you are free to go. If I was you, I would head back to Baghdad. And that is exactly what this man did. <laughs> he went back to Baghdad, to his house, out into his garden, and he dug under the fountain. And there he found mountains of money, which he was a little bit more wise when he used. Nice. That's awesome. I love that. Like, I love that Oh, story. you idiot. I've had this dream a million times. I'd be rich if I went to Baghdad. It's like, oh, my dream is coming true. My silly, foolish dream. I better go back. Bye. Like, what's so interesting about that story is that, like, 
if that judge had been willing to listen to the dream knowledge, Mm -hmm. he would have had those riches. Like if he had been willing to do that, because if he's had that dream like three times, if he's had that dream like multiple times and hasn't wanted to act on it at all, then it's, it almost feels like in the story that like that gift that God had been willing to give to that guy, if he had listened to his dream, he then in turn was like, well, then I'll give it to somebody who will listen. And, and so, yeah, like, it's just this really fascinating story that is about, Hey, listen to your dreams, follow your dreams. (laughs) I will be a baker. That's not really my dream. Speaking of, (laughs) let's talk about how we feel about dreams. And I'll go first because it's going to be a shorter, less interesting answer. I think dreams are super interesting. I think they're super fascinating. And I wish that I had and or remembered my dreams more often. Because if there's some sort of dream knowledge that's being shared with me, it's going to waste because like literally 90 to 95% of the time, I don't remember anything about my dreams. I don't even remember the fact that I had a dream. I just wake up and it's like, I am no longer sleeping. But when I do have dreams, I think they're really fun and interesting and fascinating. I can't remember very many times where they were super meaningful, except for like, I've had dreams about things that I was like, you know, like anxious about, or, you know what I mean? Like I I can look back and be like, oh, this dream was meaningful because I could tell that it was like me, like kind of processing and worrying about this thing or whatever, you know, it's like, I can connect it back to my life, but not in a way that's like, here's a solution to fix all your problems. I was like, oh, like, yeah, I really am really worried about this thing because I keep dreaming about it. Which actually that's been, that happened to me like (laughs) this past week, but I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Um, Man, I'm always so, like, I'm so conflicted about what I think about dreams because I've had several really cool kind of like dream experiences, you know, that bled into like real life. And like, What's interesting is there's a lot of women in my family who have had that happen to them. And so it's almost like I'm Mm -hmm. like, I don't know if this is like, you know, this almost like family of like witch women, (laughs) you know, who have these like very meaningful dreams or whether it is like, you know, just a handful of times stuff has like happened from dreams where like, it seems real. I mean, most of the time, like what I feel about dreams is that they tell you a lot about kind of what's going on and like the inner workings like of yourself. I mean, kind of what you were saying that like, if you are stressed, (sighs) you have a dream about being stressed. What's funny. Like I've never had the like, like being naked in front of people dream or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I often have like a dream if I am stressed out, especially stressed out about something that has to do with like academics. I will have a dream where I am the lead in a play and I have not been to any of the practices. Uh, I don't, don't I don't know, know the lines. lines. I don't know the choreography. That's really I don't, common. It's such a stressful dream. Yeah, it's really interesting because that's a common dream that people that have never even done theater also have. Oh my gosh, have. that's hilarious. I mean, you and I yeah. have done theater and like I have had that dream as well. But yeah, I when I was a little kid, I used to have dreams not about being naked, but I would have dreams that I went to school without shoes. 
and I was like paranoid and like really anxious about it all day because like I was like afraid I would get in trouble. And so I was like trying to hide the fact yeah. that I wasn't wearing shoes. Uh, but I was like, I can't believe I forgot my shoes. But I like was embarrassed and I didn't want anyone to know. Like that was uh, that was a recurring dream for me was like going to school without yeah. shoes. And I actually have had that as an adult as well. Like I've gone, had dreams where I went to work, but I forgot my shoes. And it's so similar. Like if I if that did happen now, like I'm like, oh, I get all the way to work. I'm like, I forgot my shoes. I would just be like, hey, I forgot my shoes. I'll be back. But in my dream, no, I don't. In my dream, I try to go about my day as if nothing is wrong and trying just to avoid people seeing that I am not wearing any shoes. And it's really interesting because I feel like like dreams really can give you insight. But a lot of the insight... Yeah. In my experience, a lot of the insight that dreams can give you is like into yourself, like insight into like things that you're not thinking about, insight into maybe like relationship patterns that when you're awake, you don't realize like how bad the relationship patterns are, like things like that are commonly, you know, what, what I find useful like about dreams. Yeah, and I absolutely believe that dreams can do that because they're and it's the same thing that goes with kind of like intuition and like you know like your gut feeling or I mean even like with experience like at work things will happen like I make I'm a video producer I make videos and like people will come to me and they'll be like oh I'm having this problem with my editing software and just like, I don't know why, but I'm just like, oh, I think this is probably what the problem is. Just based on like a tiny little description. And it's just like that gut feeling. Like, I don't know that in my, I don't feel like I'm like thinking yeah. it through. I'm just like, oh, I think this is the problem. Try this. And it's right because I've experienced that myself to the point where it's like, I don't even have to think about it. I just kind of know because the patterns are there. Because we are absorbing so much information around us all the time. We're taking in so many signals that we're not like consciously processing so I really do believe that there's something to that. Like we know things. I feel I feel like everyone has had that experience. Like you know things that you don't know, like in your brain, but you yeah. do. It's just coming to you in a way that's like not conscious thought, but it still is a valid form of like absorbing, ma- retaining, and then acting on information that you have absorbed. And it makes total sense to me that dreams would be a way that that could happen because you're in such a different state of mind that you can look at things in a different way. Which again is why I'm really sad that I don't remember my dreams as often because when I do, it feels like they're really just like complete nonsense. And it's like, I feel like there are insights into myself that I could glean if I could remember my dreams. So there are a lot of elements even inside of the Thousand and One Nights that seem dreamlike in quality, whether it's how they, you know, include fantastic riches, animals that are only alive in your fantasy, or even the way that the stories are chopped up where, you know, they're, you're going from place to place from location, from one amazing locale to another amazing locale, just like in dreams, you like hop around to different places. The whole of the thousand one nights themselves has a very like dreamlike quality to it. And the outermost layer of that dream is the dreams that we all can share through storytelling. When you're hearing a story, you are creating pictures in your mind, just like inside of a dream. 
And so people who are analyzing like the Thousand and One Nights, they'll say that Shahrazad herself is lulling the king into a dream. And this whole thing is kind of in this dreamscape. And anytime any of us are entering into storytelling, we are allowing ourselves to enter a dream space in our minds. And so I just want to finish with this quote from Stranger Magic by Marina Warner. It says, the enchantments of the Arabian Nights depend on this self-mirroring magical technique whereby the audience experience illusions summoned by the words on the page or in the ear. In the same way as the characters in the stories move in a landscape where magic keeps turning illusions into reality. Thank you for listening to The Fairy Tellers. If you enjoy what we're doing, please leave us a review or share us with your friends. Also consider supporting us on Patreon for access to exclusive bonus content, including outtakes and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash thefairytellers. Special thanks to Andrew Foray for our music and to Clarice Inch for our artwork. And of course, a big thank you to all our patrons. Without all of you, this show wouldn't be possible. Fairy tales are always more interesting when something is added to them. Each new telling recharges the narrative, making it crackle and hiss with cultural energy. Maria Tatar. There's like there's absolutely nothing of of value or consequence that's inside your mind. <laughs>